Hello and welcome to Getting Into It, a podcast for anyone looking to start, change or just learn about careers. And today uh, with me for our very first episode uh, is, uh, is Michael. Uh, Michael is a good friend of mine and has been in various roles and is now currently working as a business tax analyst for Deloitte. Hello, Michael. Hi, Joel. Pleasure to be here. So, so Michael, to, to get to get started, talk to me about your very first job, because the whole idea of this is, is understanding sort of, you know, the world of work and how that affects different people and when different people get started. So, you know, what was your first job? How old were you? What are some some things that are particularly memorable for you? Sure. So uh, I sort of had, I guess, two first jobs. The first one was was a volunteering job. So uh, that's why I count myself as having two. But I volunteered at a charity hospice shop in my hometown. Uh, I actually started it for Duke of Edinburgh, of all things, for the volunteering. So I was meant to stay there for three months. And they all liked me so much. And I like working there so much. I ended up staying for about three years in the end. Okay, so a bit of an extension, yeah. A bit, bit of an extension to the to the three months, but um, that was good. I I don't know if anyone else will have worked in a charity shop, but uh, you find very quickly that it's filled with sort of slightly older, middle-aged women, almost exclusively. Um, <laughs> so them having sort of a younger guy, and I was very quickly tasked with uh, looking after anything electronic. Um, okay, sure, sure. And was that was that something that's in your wheelhouse, or...? Uh, so they, they, yeah, there was one other guy there who, who I think was actually an electrician by trade, had, had since retired. So he showed me a few of his tricks, sort of. It was mostly just checking that items people had donated worked properly so we could sell them again. So it wasn't too difficult. I think most of the people there were just scared of fancy new technology. So, What was the best part about working in that in that role was it you know, is it the job itself? Is it the environment? Is it, you know, sort of what it's contributing towards? Yeah, I think obviously it's nice to be working for a charity. Um, always felt like you were doing some good. And um, the team was really nice, I think, because everyone's there volunteering. You're sort of in it together. And I think it taught me a lot of valuable things about work, about working on a team. And, um, you know, we had a till, so I did work with money as well. A lot of valuable skills without sort of the pressure of, you know, people didn't expect that much from you because at the end of the day, they're not paying you. So it's kind of up to you to work on your own work ethic and do what you can to be as helpful as possible. Which I guess is probably quite a nice one to to start off with because it's like it's 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 low stakes and it's and it I guess quite a natural environment for like you say like learning and working with these kind of valuable skills. Which especially you know being on a till, having any kind of customer service experience is is going to do you a lot of favors later down the line. I'm sure. Yeah, I think that was pretty good. You see a lot of all all sorts of characters in uh charity shops as well my, my favorite were always the sort of 30 40 year old men that were going out on a stag do and they always needed uh usually a dress or of some sort or whatever fancy fancy dress theme and obviously didn't want to spend too much so they'd come to the charity shop so you often got these sort of burly bald men you know buying the sort of fancy frilly dresses that <laughs> Uh, for, for all those events they were going to. That sounds excellent. Uh, so, okay, so what was the most useful thing that you left that job with? I think it would be the ability to work with lots of different individuals for, from sort of the, the people I worked with in my teams and the clients that came through, you know, the customers that came through. You, you met people from such a wide range of backgrounds. So sort of being able to tailor how you talk to people, how you help people, um 
was really a skill that I mean we both know we came from quite a small school uh, there weren't too many people who were that different from each other to be honest um well, yeah quite a narrow demographic uh, <laughs> very narrow demographic so I thought that was a really good skill and definitely a skill that I, I I took forward into jobs where I was in bigger teams or in more pressured situations where you have to deal with people who don't think the same as you and you've got to sort of work out how best to sort of get the team to move forward on the topic of school actually a wonderful segue thank you michael how was school for you because i'm always interested in these kind of things because um for for context if anyone um, i'm a recently qualified teacher and i found it particularly interesting looking into how schools work with trying to get kids to think about careers and think about the wider world of work um and so and, and just understanding how school affects people as they approach sort of professionalism um so 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 generally you know how how did you find school good question i i think overall i had a good experience at school um i think you know academically i was fortunate enough to to not necessarily struggle all that often you can you can you can say you were good at you were good academically and not sound arrogant that's completely fine (laughs) (laughs) so i enjoyed i enjoyed learning and i i didn't really tend to struggle with the test so it was for me it was more sort of the, the character building that you sort of go through your your formative years and interesting okay and so so did you feel that school sort of helped to set you up at all for for later life you know whether that be in the workplace or just just in general i think in general possibly mm. you know the, the the skills you learn and yeah i think you it's quite easy to rebel against school while you're there um there's somewhere you feel you're forced to be but at the end of the day the things they're making you do and sort of behavior terms and how you interact with other people you know are useful life skills at the end of the day so um i would say transitioning into a job i would say sort of my volunteering in my early jobs probably helped more from that perspective because it is quite a different environment um but what i'm doing right now is obviously a, a bit more sort of academic in terms of you know we do a lot of reading day to day and investigating and that's some of those skills are a lot similar to sort of school and university so you do do end up using some of those sort of direct skills that you learn then later on as well oh interesting and and do you and do you find in your sort of i mean we'll, we'll come back to this later but do you do you feel that in your current role you're still able to kind of um meet that you said before that you, you like learning like do you feel that you're still able to do that in your current role yeah so I'm what I'm doing now is actually currently an apprenticeship. So I'm technically an apprentice. It's a it's a level a level seven apprenticeship, which I didn't realise existed, which I think is equivalent to sort of postgraduate, um, sort of master's level. So we have to do a lot of learning and I'm going for my chartered accountancy exams. So every exam I come up to, we have a period of we call it college basically, which is tutor led learning. And then time spent sort of study leave on our own learning as well. And then we have to sit exams. So in, in a way, I've, I've almost taken a step backwards. So even though a lot of the time I am sort of doing a normal job, there is a lot of learning to do in, in, in this role and a lot more exams that I should, probably should have looked up before I got stuck in. I'm not, I'm not sure how much I love the exams. Yeah, I was going to say, because I mean, we've spoken about this in the, in the, in the past about my absolute hatred of exams and and the fact that if you if i was in a role where i knew i was going to regularly be examined that would be one of the the biggest sort of you know put-offs for me like how many a year do you are you currently doing and is that going to decline as you go forwards so the apprenticeship is about three and a half years long so i'm i'm 
I'm reaching the end of my second year now. Um, and I have sat nine exams so far. And I still have six more to do. Oh my goodness, 15 exams? Yeah, 15 exams. But fortunately, once you're qualified, uh, you're a chartered accountant and then that's it. You know, it's it's like a degree, I guess. You know, once you get the qualification, they can't take that away from you. But they do make it hard to get it. So, so can, you, can you kind of explain what that means? Sorry to, to be chartered, because I think that's a term that's thrown around a lot of industries that people might not necessarily understand that well. So what does becoming chartered actually mean? Yeah, so it's funny. This is the uh, only thing I really learned <laughs> surprisingly recently. But uh, it, it, if you work in the uh, accounting profession, um, you are an accountant. So if you if you work uh, for companies helping sort their finances or uh, sorting money that's paid in or paid out, you know, you're an accountant. Mm. But to become chartered accountants, you have to take the exams that I'm doing. So you have to do this course. Um, you have to prove that you've worked in a sort of a professional environment for a certain number of years and pass some ethics exams as well. And then you become part of the body, basically. So I'll be joining the ICAEW, which is the Institute of Chartered Accountants for England and Wales. And my membership of that makes me a, a chartered accountant. So once I pass all my exams, I'll get inducted. You'll learn the secret handshake. You yeah. know, you'll, you'll, you'll get all those extra special chartership secret wine mixes uh, uh secret clubs in london all that yeah exactly yeah the, the seedy underbelly of the accounting world of, of course yeah obviously accountants well known for their uh, wild parties and fun personalities <laughs> famously famously accountants are always the most fun people at a party oh 100 uh, and okay so so when you when you finished school or as you were like going into college did you think oh yeah okay now's my chance i can i can go and be a chartered accountant or did you have sort of other ideas or ambitions in mind at the time so a lot of the time i uh, i was part of the air cadets growing up and i really liked flying i thought it was really cool i don't know how many <laughs> sort of 12 to 16 year old boys girls even you know it's, it's a very cool thing to do unless you're scared of it obviously but I got lucky enough to get a flying scholarship when I was uh, 16, actually. Wait, what, is, what does that actually mean? So through the cadets, um, I would drive up to Abingdon every weekend and I would do training. But also that the people that were on the scholarship were in charge of looking after the planes. So we washed all the planes after the days and things like that. Ah, uh, okay. And then so I did seven hours of training over sort of a number of weekends. And then once I completed that, they let me go for a solo flight. So I, I took my first slow, solo flight in a plane when I was 16, wow. before, I, before I knew how to drive. <laughs> um, found learning to drive a lot harder, for the record. But Oh, really? What is it? So, I mean, potentially a stupid question. How, how difficult is it to fly a plane? Like, is it kind of like once you've, you've figured out a couple of dials and you keep, you know, I, I've, I've seen Top Gun, so I understand roughly how, how planes work, clearly, because that's definitely going to be an accurate representation. Um, but yeah, how, how complicated is it? So I think if you if you were to explain how to fly in a plane, it would sound a lot harder than it that it probably is. You, mm. you you had a stick which tipped you left and right, and you pulled it back to go up and pushed it forward to go down. And you had pedals that kind of helped you turn. I guess is the best way of explaining it. And then you just have a throttle and an air brake, which make you go fast and slow respectively. So once you're in the air, there's not an awful lot to do. You just kind of keep it straight and flat. The two big things that we had to learn were, A, uh, how to land a plane. That's surprisingly hard. No, I, I don't think that's surprising at all. I think I'd find it very <laughs> hard to try and land a plane. 
try and try and land on the narrow bit of tarmac that looks very small when you're up in the sky. And the other thing we had to learn was what to do if something went wrong. So they were called uh, PLATOs. So it stands for Power Loss After Takeoff. That's a cool acronym as they come. You know, that, that definitely I know. Uh, I thought that was quite a cool name at the time. But um, basically what you do is you take off and at a certain height, um, what height you were at depended on what you did. But your instructor would turn your engine off and then you had to react as if you'd had an engine failure. So if you were close enough to the runway, you had to try and turn around as fast as you can and get back down onto the ground. Obviously, you're not going to stay in the air for very long once your engine's off. But if you were a bit further away and you couldn't get back to the, the landing strip, then you had to ditch the plane in a field, basically. So obviously, we wouldn't actually put it in a field. We'd turn the engine back on just before we hit. But the, the instructor let it get very close sometimes. There were sort of wheat fields around the outside of the airfield, and I'd almost fully land on top of the wheat before he'd, he'd turn the engine back on and then say, okay, that, that was good. You'd probably survive if that happened. So. That's always reassuring. Oh, you'd probably survive. Yeah. Did you ever see any actual crashes? Did you get into any... So was, was that the closest scrape you got into in terms of things going wrong? I mean, obviously that's a controlled environment, but did you ever have, have any actual issues? Fortunately, uh, not. I mean, the, the worst we had was it was getting quite windy one day and we were taking off. And we just took off. We noticed it was quite windy because the funny thing with a plane is you can basically turn it sideways into the wind. So you're looking off to the right, imagine, but you're going straight forward because you turn into the wind. And uh, so it's called crabbing because you're basically flying sideways. And just after we took off, we heard over the radio, they were grounding all the planes because they'd got too windy. So, so we're in the air <laughs> trying to navigate uh, basically a storm. And they've told no other planes are allowed to take off. So we're just up in there on our own. And that was quite interesting to land because, as I said, you're coming in basically sideways into the to the runway and then at the last minute you have to kind of turn so you land straight so that was quite stressful that day but it's all it's all good experience and it's fun to learn how to do sort of react with a not quite a, i guess that was an emergency situation we knew the wind was quite bad but sort of react to a to a bad situation quite quite quickly and quite calmly because you can't get stressed in those situations otherwise something will go wrong so yeah sure okay that's what i mean I, I think that's 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 quite interesting. So so from there, like you know, you've you've got all this experience. You recognise what you need to do when things go wrong. You know what were what were the kind of options that you were thinking about? You know, was was this something that was like okay, well, this is a fun hobby, or is this something like okay, legitimately, I would like to have a career related to flying, or at least that enables me to fly. Yeah, good segue back to the original question. I realised I went on quite. No, 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 no. I love. We're all, we're all about tangents here. <laughs> we're all about tangents here. Um, yeah. So so growing up, and I really enjoyed flying. And um, as I said, I did seven hours of training, and that was one of the shortest they'd ever seen. Um, so I thought maybe I had a bit of a knack for it. He's just so good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what the guy said, actually. But. Uh, <laughs> um, I think I just found it quite comfortable and it. it was one of those things you just learn how to do it and then you can just keep repeating it. So I thought maybe I'd like to go, you know, work as a pilot. So I looked at either RAF or commercial. I, I did like the idea of the RAF in that it, it's free to learn how to fly. You know, they pay you to learn how to fly essentially. But the, there were a lot of problems in, you know, first of all, I could end up getting deployed overseas, almost certainly would be deployed overseas. So I'd have to spend quite a long time away, sort of away from friends and family. So whether I'd want to do that. And uh, also quite controlling of what you fly. So if you finish your flight training and then they need a helicopter pilot, 
you're going to go become a helicopter pilot. If you get out the other end and they need freight planes, then you're going to fly freight planes. And I think I was probably too tall to fly a fighter jet as well, which was a bit unfortunate. So I didn't even have the exciting sort of top gun aspect. I did not know that that was a consideration that needed to be, you know, taken in when when you're picking your pilots. And what's the optimal height of a fighter pilot? Uh, well, I've met the Red Arrows, and they're probably five six to five nine. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. They are they are quite short. So uh, when I when I asked, it was basically put that um, the way the canopy works in a fighter, you're basically surrounded by your instruments. They're all quite close in front of you. Uh, all those that watch Top Gun will have seen that. So if you ever need to eject out the top of it, you need to be able to get your legs past those. And I, I was told pretty much that if I had to eject, I'd probably leave my legs behind, which which doesn't sound like a fun way to get out of a plane. So I, I probably would have ended up like something a bit bigger. So so is that is that a literal leave your legs behind? Like as you press the ejector, the thrust from it will rip your legs from your body. Yeah, so those those ejector seats have a rocket in the bottom. They're designed to work. You should be able to land safely if you eject from the ground. So uh, they need to fire you high enough up in the air that a parachute can deploy and drop you safely back. So I would, you know, hundreds of miles per hour probably that they're going to fire you out through the cockpit. So if your knees are going to catch under the instruments at the front of the plane... <laughs> then, yeah, uh, you probably are, are going to physically leave your legs behind. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've never thought about the practicality of that before. Uh, and I feel like that is a pretty valid reason not to become a fighter pilot. Would, would you consider, you know, obviously you train to be a pilot, but would you fly a heli helicopter? Is that something that appealed to you? So I always found helicopters to be, I don't know, a bit more intimidating to fly than a plane. I, I guess with a plane, if you turn the engine off it, it turns into a glider for a little bit. So you can kind of glide somewhere and hopefully land somewhere safe. Whereas uh, if a helicopter's engine turns off, it turns into a rock. Um, <laughs> those don't tend to fly very well for any amount of time. So No, I'm, I'm no physicist, but even I can confirm that. <laughs> so I did, I did consider it. And um, I think maybe I'd like to sort of fly planes as a hobby in the future, maybe. But I think it would be a small little plane and probably not a helicopter. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that's that's probably fair enough. Like, I remember one time, um, Sam, my brother, for context, um, who is now an engineer at the time, was doing A level mechanics, and they had a lesson. I can't remember exactly what it was on, um, but had a lesson looking at the mathematical physics behind why and how a helicopter flies. And apparently, after having that lesson, he was like, "I'm never going in a helicopter. They are ridiculous. Like, from a scientific point of view, they just make." very very well not not no sense because obviously they do work so there's going to be some logic there but it seems like there's a lot that can go very wrong with a helicopter yeah they're, they're, they're essentially each blade is basically like a wing of a plane so instead of moving the plane through the sky to generate lift to make it fly the helicopter just spins its wings really really fast and hopes for the best okay so so what point was it where you sort of realized that okay maybe this isn't going to be something that i can you know, have a career in? Because you've said, you know, you'd, you'd happily sort of resign yourself to, to having it as a hobby. So was there, what was, was there like a specific point or was it kind of a gradual realization? So I decided the RAF probably wasn't for me, you know, sort of for the number of reasons. So I thought about going into commercial piloting. Mm. And commercial piloting, you can pay for yourself to go through the course. There are lots of little uh, sort of centers that, that can train you to be a pilot. But it's about... 120, 130,000 pounds. 
So wow, it's very, okay. very expensive. Are there any like grants or things like that, or is it entirely off the back of the the person who wants to become a pilot? I think there are certain charities and things that can help you out. I was in sort of the weird situation where my family was doing well enough that I, I'm never sort of going to be entitled to a grant, but they definitely didn't have 130,000 pounds lying around somewhere <laughs> to join me. So the one thing you can do is go through a, a scheme that's sponsored by an airline. And basically what happens is you get a loan for the amount from, from a bank, pay your way through the course, and then they'll buy the loan off you at the end and then sort of deduct that amount from your, your paychecks for a number of years. But And so you work off the actual cost of the training. Yeah, and it, and it means that they, you know, they will guarantee you a job after the training course. Whereas if you pay for yourself to go through, uh, I mean, almost certainly you're going to get picked up. You know, qualified pilots aren't that many but um you don't know where you're going to end up and you're kind of hoping there's some vacancy you know where you want it especially some small airlines fly out of all sorts of places you know you can get moved up to the to scotland or you know wales or the south coast anyway you know anywhere they need a pilot so so i applied to the virgin atlantic scheme okay the, the first time i applied I, I didn't get through the online application it was quite painful literally the first step didn't get through that and so was that a survey? Was that an aptitude test? Was that a cover letter? You know, what did that actually look like specifically? Yeah, so it was a, a, a <laughs> I think it, this was actually just sort of the cover letter, how old I was, why I wanted this, this role, and um, it was really sort of high level. Hmm. So I didn't get through that the first time, but that was, I was just finishing college. So I was just 18. Uh, I was probably a bit young, wasn't really sure what I was doing. So I ended up taking a gap year and applying again same scheme um and this time i got through that stage then there were the sort of the maths and english tests i got through that and i got selected for an assessment center okay so this was a, a full day assessment center down in southampton and they make you do sort of a group exercise you know one of these ones where you're imagining you're climbing up everest and they're they're like what would you take with you out of this list and it's how you work as a team basically and then they you know they create an emergency in the middle where you know our guides got lost and you know what do we do now what order do we do things in so we did that and we did a a one-to-one interview which was sort of about why you want to do it what your aspirations were and a bit of your experience a bit like a normal job interview and do you enjoy interviews do you interview well or is that something that you're looking to stay as far away from as possible it was stressful it was definitely stressful um I think once I get talking, I'm usually better. I'm usually quite nervous going in, trying to remember everything. But then the last test of the day was one of these spatial awareness tests. So you're basically playing a game, I would say, where you've got a joystick and some numbers and some colors, and they make you do more and more things at the same time. So sort of in the end, they're flashing things up at a screen that you've got to sort of pay attention to, and you're trying to move across here at the same time. Something's happening in your headset that you're counting numbers in your head as well. So you've got to pay attention to a lot of things, sort of just test your ability to sort of focus on a lot of information at once. Yeah, well, I, I, I remember hearing and I could definitely believe that this is not true. <laughs> it, it sounds like it's somewhere in the in the region of the kind of things that you're having to do, but possible. But supposedly if you were to, to be an Apache helicopter pilot, you had to be able to read two books simultaneously. Yeah, I heard that they, they train you to use your eyes independently. I had heard that. Okay, interesting. But I don't know, again, I don't know how true it is. I haven't heard that from an Apache pilot, so... <laughs> I was just about to say, oh, do you know any? But since you've met the Red Arrows, chances are that the answer is almost definitely yes. I probably met a helicopter pilot, uh, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I don't remember him being able to use his eyes independently. But it, it's certainly <laughs> the case that 
Unless, <laughs> yeah, a, unless he just had a lazy eye, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's really cool. You can do this. And yeah, I just called him out on it. A bit rude, actually. And, that, and that's the real reason why you're in no way a pilot now, because they were like, get out of here. We can't have that here. You can't make fun of people with lazy eye. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, with that, the Virgin scheme, I, I did actually manage to get through the, the assessment center as well. So I got a final interview at Virgin. And was this like to get on that grant program? Yeah, so this was to to become a Virgin pilot. They would, you know, put you through the scheme, and I think I got down to the last fifty or so, um, and there were twelve spots, and unfortunately, I didn't mm-hmm. get one. Do you know how many people applied initially for that? I think it was somewhere in the region of four thousand. Oh my gosh! Okay, it was obviously a kick in the teeth to not get the job at the end of it, yeah, but of took the positive that I'd managed to get quite far. Oh, definitely. But on my gap year, I deferred a place at university with the place that, you know, over my gap year, I would try and get on one of these schemes. And if I didn't, then I would go to university. So that's what I ended up doing. Perfect. And what did you and what did you go on to do at university? And also as well, were your university fine with you deferring? Did they, you know, sort of make it imply that like, oh, if you defer, we, we won't be able to have you next year? Or was it completely fine? Yeah, they were actually quite, quite fine with it. Yeah. So I just had normal results day with everyone else. And I found out whether I got my space uh, on the same day. And then I, so I knew I had a space and they were happy to defer it. So, so you just kind of sit on it for a year. Yeah, just sat on it and they were expecting me. So obviously if I had got this other this other pilot training, I would have had to tell them that I'm not coming. But <laughs> uh, they, they were expecting me in September. So I went to the University of Exeter and I did biological sciences. So quite, quite, a, quite a shift. Quite a shift. It was, I did uh, biology, chemistry and maths at A-level and uh, biology was always one that sort of stuck out to me as the, the subject I enjoyed the most. So mm. uh, I thought if I was going to go to university without really a plan then i might as well do something i enjoy and get a degree oh definitely yeah i mean i, I think that that was one of the main things that that i chose i mean i was like yeah i here is a subject that i can do and i do enjoy it so that's I, that's as good a place to start as any so so did you did you work at all like alongside uni or was it just focusing on the study well i, I actually i'd imagine you had probably a very packed timetable uh yeah so i couldn't work during term time we had uh, you know sort of lectures every day and labs so then i was sort of catching up over the weekends but on my gap year i also worked at sainsbury's uh, sort of to fill the time classic job excellent what yeah. did you what did you do at sainsbury's so i was a uh, a, a butcher stroke fishmonger so i worked on the um the counters at the back of you know these supermarkets uh, which which made it i guess slightly more interesting i i learned how to sort of cut up meat joints and how to Billet of fish, gutter fish. Does this mean that you now bought all of the different knives to do all these different procedures properly and it's now a very elaborate process of ever you're preparing any meat or or is that or are those days behind you now? Have you moved past your your butchery days? No, I, I, I do have a, a habit to, to sharpen knives quite regularly. Possibly a disconcerting uh, <laughs> thing if you if I ever have guests over, but I, I we used to have incredibly sharp knives, obviously. Mm. Uh, makes it a lot easier. So now I, I get very upset if a knife's not sharp enough. No, well, no, well, this is, I, I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say this and I was worried I was going to sound like an absolute weirdo. But um, when my partner and I moved into our into our new place as a little sort of moving in gift, my aunt got me some knives where the sheath has a sharpener within it. And so every time you take it out, it sharpens the knife. It's It's absolutely fantastic. Those are amazing, yeah. Highly recommend them. This is in no way sponsored. Go and get some masterclass knives with the with the sharpening sheath. But the but the problem is once you as you say, like once you've cut regularly with a really sharp knife, going to anything where you can't like effortlessly just like chop through a bell pepper. Well, what is this? What's the yeah. point in having a knife if I can't cut through things easily? You know? It should glide. Yeah. It should glide. You're absolutely right. <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, so I did that over the Christmas and over the summer mm-hmm. to sort of top up the money because university is surprisingly expensive. Sure. And then in the summer of my second year, I managed to get a sort of a summer internship. Oh, what was the, so what was the internship? So this is uh, for the job that I have now, actually. So by the, by second year, I was sort of deciding whether I still wanted to be a pilot. Uh, and for similar reasons that the RAF push, put me off sort of, you spend a lot of time away as a pilot, mm-hmm. I think. And um, we, we had a, we had a talk from a pilot uh, at, when I was at Aircadets. And funnily enough, it was actually the pilot that was, um, do you remember the Las Vegas plane that caught fire on the, uh, while it was still in the airport? I'm not sure if you remember that. This was a- Vaguely, but that sounds like something I should remember well, because that sounds like something that definitely would have been on the news. <laughs> yeah, it was quite big in the news. This was a, a few years ago now, though, at least, and it caught fire as it was taking off. So luckily, they managed to stop it on the runway. But it was actually the, the captain of that plane actually lives in, in my village. So oh, wow. but he, he talked about you know how it was to be a pilot. I remember one of the things he said was that he is, he'd just retired, and he's like, oh, the, the, the fuzziness has finally gone. And he said, basically, because he's doing long haul flights, you know, every week. So basically, you, you just end up in a sort of permanent jet lag. And he said he was always slightly, oh, it makes me a bit worried to fly, actually. But there was always something, you know, slightly wrong. Because I guess your body can't really ever adjust to a time zone. You end up sort of being yeah. in limbo. And so there were lots of different things like that that sort of were maybe starting to put me off flying. You know, I enjoyed flying, but I should probably maybe keep it as a hobby in the, in the future. Okay, so so from there, what was your sort of main motivation or what was the main thing you had in mind as you were going forward thinking about careers? So I started to try and look for careers that were a bit more different, a bit more stable, maybe. Um, I knew I enjoyed maths. I always enjoyed maths from school and college and I knew I liked problem solving. So, you know, you do all these online quizzes, you know, what would you be good at? And accountancy seemed to keep popping its head up or, or consultancy of some sort. So over the summer, I applied to a load of different accounting schemes, some banking schemes as well, an insurance company as well I applied to. So, How did you find that grad scheme application process? Because from experience, I did one and then I hated it so much that I never applied for another one ever again. So, <laughs> so I, I recognize and, and appreciate your endurance within that. But how did, I mean, maybe you found it a lot easier i mean clearly but... oh no 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 not not, not even close I, I think i did somewhere in the region of 12 to 15 applications okay. some of those you know you you don't hear back from the first stage uh, a lot i would get through the first couple of stages and then maybe not get an interview or, or or i mean one i even got to final interview and then they just never got back to me so i assume i didn't get that one but that's just, that's i absolutely hate that there's nothing worse than when you spend especially because like how, how long would you say it took you to do an application generally some of the bigger ones where you had multi-stage would take hours you know the, when you're doing the maths and situational awareness tests you know there is sort of an hour each and that's per application. So it really is a, a lot of time you sink into those. Exactly. And if you are putting in that much time, the least they can do is just send you an email saying, ah, oh, no. Like, even if it was just that, but just having no reply, being in that limbo, and then you wait until a week until after you were meant to hear, and then you're like, oh, I guess I probably haven't got it. And, you know, there's, there's, there's no closure there. Yeah, definitely a process I think a lot of companies could improve on. And I think the hardest one for me was getting... I got a final interview in London. So I got the train all the way up to London from Exeter. Uh, sat the final interview. There were eight of us for two spots. Ooh. And they called me up a week later. And they, they said I was, I was the third best candidate there. Oh, you, you don't... I mean, did you... 
if you had the option, would you would you want to know that, or would you want to just be the one of the six that didn't get it? Well, basically, what they said was that if one of the other two decided to decline it for whatever reason, that then you're uh, the next pick, and I'm in. So I can see why they told me that, but I had to say that was a real, you know, that I, I'd done I'd done very well, but just not quite well enough. Yeah. So I almost gave up at that point, and then my partner at the time managed to convince me to to try a couple more. So I did exactly two more, <laughs> one of which uh, <laughs> yeah, I took that quite literally, and one of which was was at Deloitte. And I think by that point, I'd I'd got so much experience with the style of tests, you know, mm. and the, the style of interviews that you kind of get used to it. And I was fortunate enough to actually get one to work in the tax team in in Reading, uh, not far from where I lived. So uh, I went and did that over the summer. It was six weeks. And they pay you as well, which was quite nice. So is this is this proper legit full time work? Yeah, so full, you know, five days a week for six weeks, and uh, you just basically we had one day orientation that was in London. They gave us a laptop and told us how everything worked, and then the next day we were just in the office. And we were expected to sort of go around the office and talk to people and ask if we could help them with anything, and it was quite a thrown in the deep end, but I think it was a really good experience mm. and. At the end of that, they they interview everyone for a, for a full time job. So, are there positions available for all of their interns, or again, is it is it limited? They're only going to be taking a certain number. In the past, I think they've always had you know like comfortably enough slots. I think for our year, it was exactly one to one. So, in theory, all of us could get a spot. But obviously, if some people were applying that hadn't done an internship, then that you know those people might end up getting a job. So not not everyone um, on the intake, my intake, or the intake before mine actually got offered a job in the end. Most of us were, and I was I was lucky enough to be offered a job there as well. So yeah. So okay. So so you had a one day orientation, and then we're thrown into to full time work. I can imagine that was probably quite. I mean, how did, how did you find that? That seems like it could be potentially quite an abrasive experience. Suddenly, you know, like you say, being thrown in the deep end like that. Yeah, getting used to the. Um... Because it's obviously bang in the middle of summer holidays, and as a student, you use summer holidays to catch up on sleep. Well, I certainly did. So getting into a to a normal sleep cycle was was definitely an uphill battle for me. And I mean, luckily, I, I had a bit of sort of work experience with other jobs, so I, I sort of had a bit of an expectation. But it, because it was office work, and I'd never done office work before, I did find that very odd. You sort of walk in and try and sit in a desk that's not owned by someone, so you don't upset anyone day one. And Did you not have a, a set place where you were meant to be working? They had just introduced hot desking when I got there. So uh, it, got you. people were meant to be moving around, but as it had only just been introduced, a lot of people had somewhere that there was their favourite spot to sit. Fortunately, one guy was out for sort of you can take sort of long leave so he was touring around north america i think so i just stayed at his spot uh every every day because i knew <laughs> knew no one else was going to use it and was there of that moment where he, he came back and was like get out of my spot or was he always away the entire time uh well actually he was back in for the last week i was there <laughs> and i didn't realize he was coming back so i grabbed my stuff and i walk over to my desk sort of in my own head a little bit mm. And I look up and someone just sat there. And I, obviously I'd met most of the team by now. I knew pretty much who everyone was. And this random guy, I've never met him before, don't know who he is. And he sat where I always sit. And I just, I, I kind of panicked a little bit. I had to find somewhere else very quickly. Try not look too awkward by sort of standing next to him with all my stuff. <laughs> but it was a good experience and it was quite intense, as you said. But 
they have a system where you have they call them buddies so people to look after you and to check your work's going okay so kind of like a mentor figure in a way yeah like a mentor and then uh, they, yeah they had fancy names so you had a buddy that's one-to-one and then they had champions who Ooh. yeah champions looked after all six of you so there were two of those as well so it, it was quite a well set up scheme and you know they want you to succeed they want to see the best out of you so sure. uh, i mean it makes and it, it's it's only going to make more sense like if they're paying you they want to get the money's worth and then get good candidates who can then carry out those jobs well so yeah you're right that does make sense yeah. So from there, was it just a, a case of you had a single interview and then that was it, you had the job? Or was there more to it? Yeah, so um, I guess they call it a bit of a six-week interview. You know, they, you have a, a partner interview at the end with one of the partners of the firm. And then they, they all, all the senior staff and everyone you've worked with get in a big room and they talk about how, you know, each one of you have worked, how well you've worked and all the rest of it. And then they decide whether they're going to offer you a job. So then they, yeah. So after that, they they offered me the job, fortunately. And then it was just conditional on me getting a, a two one or higher from university. And then the the job was mine. Okay. So 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 what would you say are the sort of the what's what is the single best thing about this job? What is the single worst thing about this job? I'd say one of the best things is the fact that it's different every day. I think you know when I worked at Sainsbury's, you are pretty much doing the same thing every day. You know you you putting meat out you're chopping meat up you're giving it to people there, there wasn't much variety whereas the 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 different clients i see every day the different projects i see every day the different challenges i get every day you know they sort of always keep me on my toes hmm. uh, and you, you constantly being able to learn and you, i'm fortunate to have a really good team as well to work with so i say that's sort of up there with my positives sure i like a good environment to work in yeah, it is is nice. It can be intense, but it but it is nice. Mm. I'm trying to think of the worst thing. I I don't I don't want to do that thing where I just say the worst thing is that everything's different every day. But <laughs> I think you know one of the hard things can be that it, it is a very challenging environment. There, there's a lot to learn, and we're basically giving sort of quite specific tax advice to to people that are paying for it. So you don't want to make any mistakes and. People are expecting the best from me all day, every day. And, you know, I did a biology degree. I, I, I didn't know what any of these words meant when I when I got into the role. Ne- never mind how to put them in the right order to give good advice. So, Is there any kind of safety net that's there for, for new employees in case they do, you know, give incorrect tax advice? Or is it you do that, you're now screwed? No, so it's quite well set up. So um, I'm an analyst now and you'll be an analyst for the first two years you join. So an analyst will work under a consultant. So a consultant will check what you're doing and they'll make sure it sort of kind of makes sense and they'll tweak it if they need to. And then they'll give it to, say, a director. And the director will check it again, make sure it's definitely correct. You know, they're usually someone who's been in the business sort of 10, maybe 12 years even. Uh, so they really know what they're talking about. And then last before, you know, just before it goes out, it'll go to a partner and the partner will read it and check that it's fine. So you're really never giving out advice that sort of hasn't been backed up by anything. You know, you've got a whole team there and you all work together to make sure that what you're giving out is correct. So, so OK, so moving on then, Michael, we, we're, we're coming to, to the conclusion. Um, yeah. So so for you, what's it what's what's in the pipeline for you, sir? What's what's next for you? Do you have a specific idea of what you want to do next? Like, is there a position within the company that you want to sort of aim for within the next however many years? Like, what what is the the promotion process like? I mean, I know you said you'll be an analyst for the next two years, but then is there any kind of movement, or you're on are you on a very fixed path at this point? So the the paths are reasonably fixed, basically on on years' experience. So um, 
I'm coming up to the end of my second year, so hopefully I should be a consultant next mm. year. And then you go into manager after that. So it's sort of trying to hit the milestones. They're quite well laid out. So we know what we have to hit. We know uh, what sort of experience we need to be getting to sort of be considered for those roles. And I think the big one for me is obviously trying to finish my my qualification, um, get properly certified, mm. get get chartered and I think that's a big thing so it, it does mean I guess that's not <laughs> that far looking into the future that's sort of three four years not even I guess but because it's such sort of a big goal and it's so immediate I guess it's it's hard to look possibly past that at the moment no but and it's also nice that you have that much progression and especially you know if we're, if we're thinking um in terms of pay in terms of recognition within the company like that's that's I mean it's pretty good going because because you'll be what sort of mid to late 20s by that point yeah i think being a manager and being chartered i feel like in a lot of industries i'm trying to think sam is an engineer and he's looking into chartership and things like that but i think it wouldn't be more it would be more like in his early 30s that he'd be able to get that because of the amount of time it takes so it's nice that that it is you do have that kind of immediate access to progression yeah i think that's something i've definitely found really nice in the role is that you know, you keep learning, you keep getting better, and then you get promoted, you get more responsibility, you keep learning, you keep getting better, you get promoted, you have more responsibility. So it's quite nicely stepped. And as you said, because we sort of start exams, you know, quite young, I guess, for, for a lot mm. of um, these things, you know, we can get sort of fully qualified quite early on in our careers. Yeah. Okay, so to, to sort of round it off, Michael, um, what what is it? What is a piece of advice that you would give to someone looking to get into accounting into accounting into accounting or into or into the world of work in general whichever you would prefer well i think so i guess my advice for both would be try getting uh, a job whether it's you know my, my oldest brother sort of got a paper round when he was sort of 12 13 or whatever and it, it instilled a work ethic in him that it, it still inspires me to this day i think People that manage to get that sort of early work experience, even if it's, you know, like volunteering, like how I started, I think that just gives you experience uh, of what it's like to work in a team and what it's like to work with other people towards sort of a common goal. Sure. Um, and it's something that people love when they see on your CV. I, you know, no one's ever told me this. But, well, actually, one guy did tell me this, but having having sort of three years of work experience by the time I was 18 <laughs> is is almost un, uh, not necessarily unheard of but it's quite rare and it was it was doable because it wasn't a paid job i guess you know volunteering there, there weren't really any barriers to entry so it meant that i could sort of get the work experience to get on my cv without sort of having to worry about child labor laws yeah but i but i think where that's where that's also going to come in, it's not just the fact that you have three years of working prior to being 18 but three years in the same place shows that you're someone that one sticks around you're not going to move around too much and two if you were that bad they even as a volunteer they probably would have you know tried to get rid of you at some point so so it shows that you are someone who's going to stay in one place and is able to actually work well enough with people and get along well enough with people that you can be in the same place for three years and it still be amicable and everything work yeah agreed i i think it's definitely something that affected well which is nice and the skills you learn in in any role i, I would say that's my biggest advice really is try and keep reapplying things you've learned because uh, skills you learn you might not think are useful but but everything's transferable a little bit so that's a wonderful way to to finish so thank you so much michael for for taking the time to be here i know you've had a you've had a busy day and i'm sure you'll be looking to try and get some dinner now i'm going to try and do the same 
But yeah, just want to say thank you again. And thank you as well to Daniel Shirks for providing the cover art and music. You can find him on Instagram at the mildest blackberry or on SoundCloud at Prince Pear and his Kiwi Men. If you have any suggestions for guests or any particular careers that you are interested in learning about, then you can find me on Instagram at Joel Does Creative Things. Finally, if you have time, then please rate and review this podcast as it will help out tremendously as we're getting started. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.